Hello, and welcome to Story and Fiction, a podcast that brings you the award-winning stories of William H. Coles, the creator of the website for writers, storyandliteraryfiction.com. Today we have the acclaimed novel, McDowell, a character-based story with dramatic plot, great characters, and intriguing settings, plus hundreds of top reviews. This is the first of four episodes, so let's get started. Part 1 Nepal, 1981 The Himalayas The sky cleared briefly before daybreak. The sharp, bitter winds eased somewhat, but the negative 40-degree temperatures penetrated to the bone. Hiram McDowell lifted the flap of a one-man tent to look in on Eric Wolf, who turned his head, his beard tinged in frost-white from his labored breathing. Wolf lifted his goggles, his pale blue eyes opaque with fatigue. You ready? Hiram asked. Wolf shook his head no, trying to smile, but his face remained motionless. Hiram took off his outer gloves, freed up an oxygen tank from Wolf's backpack, and placed the mask on Wolf's face. Wolf rallied after a few minutes of oxygen. Within half an hour, with four other climbers, Hiram and Wolf started for the summit. Wolf's fatigue slowed progress, and after an hour they soon fell behind the others. The wind gust increased. Wolf sank into a sitting position a few yards from a slope of snow and ice. Hiram steadied himself on a steep vertical. For a few seconds the visibility improved, but he saw no one. Go, Wolf called to him, his voice husky dry. I can't do it. With only slight hesitation, Hiram waved his agreement. He had only two hours or less to summit before their oxygen supply ran low, and Wolf was too weak to go on. The rest would strengthen him. At the summit, Hiram took photos and for a few minutes absorbed the satisfaction of his achievement and the awe of the view from the highest point on earth. Winds picked up, and snow and haze decreased visibility as he began his descent. He pressed on. After an hour, he stumbled onto Wolf a few feet from where he had left him. Get up! Hiram yelled over the howling wind. Help me! In the name of God! Wolf pleaded. Hiram gripped Wolf's parker to help him stand, but Hiram was too weak to lift, and Wolf fell back. Rescue! Wolf moaned, drifting off into semi-consciousness. Rescue from base camp was impossible until the weather improved and they were in the dead zone, too high for helicopters. Hiram freed Wolf's remaining oxygen supply and attached it to his own pack. Don't leave me, Hiram, Wolf coughed. Hiram backed away and started down. Climbing ropes aided him for a few hundred yards. Near a rock crevice familiar to him, he stumbled on the half-buried, lifeless body of a face-down climber. A candy bar and water were in the inner jacket pocket. Near the corpse's outstretched arm, a glint of silver stopped Hiram. From hard snow and the ice-solid fabric of a frozen glove hand, he freed the silver crucifix that he pocketed for identification and to send to the family. He plodded ahead, the storm abated, and he felt the muted exhilaration at knowing he would not die. On return home, after his miracle survival, 
Hiram dreamed of immortality. He determined to climb every peak above 8,000 meters in Nepal. Chapter 1 Hiram McDowell's second wife died in the summer of 1998, a few weeks after her 45th birthday party, debilitated and demented from breast cancer. She left three children, Anne, Sophie, and Billy, for Hiram to raise. Two years later, Hiram married the widow, Carol Mastriano, whom he had met in Denver. She had two daughters, Tasha and Candace, and he bought a house big enough for two families to live in more than comfortably. His only son, Billy, was at home at this time. His younger daughter, Sophie, was at school in the East, and her stepsister, Anne, from his first marriage, was in college. It was 1999. After two months away, Hiram returned to Denver from a board meeting in Chicago at the International College of Surgeons. He entered the kitchen of the contemporary 8,000-square-foot Pueblo ranch designed by H. E. Ono through the side door from the four-car garage. The view of the Rocky Mountains through the panoramic window of the sink made him pause, as it always did. He would be climbing again in a few months. He was yearning for the exertion and isolation that always energized him. His third wife, Carol, bent over the sweeping granite counter, complete with sink and cooktop, preparing dinner. She did not turn to look at him or speak. Hey, Hiram said, easing his bag through the door. You could have called, she said. He thought better of responding. Carol practiced clinical psychology and lived in her own caverns of self-imposed hell. He walked the hall to the north wing of the house. He unpacked his bag on his bed and threw dirty clothes in the corner of the room for the maid to take care of in the morning. Back in the kitchen, he put his arms around Carol's waist from the back. She was flabby now. She'd lost all pretense of trying to exercise. Good week? he asked, squeezing her slightly, then letting her go. Do you want dinner? Carol asked, not looking at him. Not sure, he said. Although with jet lag, he didn't know if he was hungry or not. Carol emptied a package of capellini into boiling water. An electric crock pot of meat sauce bubbled on an adjacent counter. Always too bland, Hiram thought. She never listened to his advice. And her girls eat anything, a banana topped with peanut butter and mayonnaise diet mentality. Is something wrong? he asked. She busied herself, searching for the strainer to drain the pasta. Call the children, she said coolly. Where was an ounce of kindness? He called into the rec room in the back bedrooms that dinner was ready. Billy, now almost 17, came out. Dad, he said. He gave his father an enthusiastic, masculine embrace. I thought you'd be at school, Hiram said. Career stuff, Billy grinned sheepishly. He meant he was goofing off somewhere. He was in chronic academic trouble. Good trip, Billy asked. Nepal, great. Chicago, not good, Hiram said. Carol's girls came out of the back room together, Tasha and Candace, short and not so short, blonde and dusky brunette. Billy had a quizzical smile looking at the girls. They all went into the dining room. What do you want to drink? Carol asked everyone. She retreated to the kitchen to fill glasses as everyone took seats. 
Hiram was pissed that Carol's girls rarely greeted him or looked at him. I'll goad them into response, he thought. How's school, he said. Carol entered with drinks on the tray. Tasha made cheerleading squad backup, Billy volunteered. Impossible to imagine, Hiram thought. Tasha teetered on the cusp of overweight with legs shaped like ice cream cones. How could she bounce and jump? She'd splat any cheerleader she landed on, and she wasn't in shape enough to support a pyramid. Well, he was exaggerating a little. But still, she was a tragedy with a pretty face and a ballooning body. You could say hello, Hiram said to the girls. Leave them alone, Carol said. Just civility, Hiram said. What would you know about civility, she said. How is school, he asked the girls. It's their break, Hiram, Carol said. They haven't been in school for two weeks. Well, enough of this shit, he thought. Come on, Billy, he said. Get your sticks, we'll eat out. Billy followed him out of the dining room. In minutes, they were on their way. In the car, Hiram asked Billy about Tasha and Candace. Hey, you messing with them? Billy was shy about sex, and Hiram enjoyed teasing him. No, Dad. Do you like them? They don't talk much to me. They're cows, don't you think? Billy didn't respond. You're not doing anything with them, are you? Like, you know. It's not that way, Dad. You sure? I'm not at the house much. They like it there better by themselves. Where are you? At school, and with a friend sometimes. He plays guitar. The club near the stadium had no sign. The speakeasy-like peephole in the door you opened yourself was never used, and there were no guards or bouncers, not even a maitre d'. The name Tritone in neon green light script waxed and waned in intensity above the bar. They took a table near the deserted bandstand. Billy laid his drumsticks and brushes that he carried in a black velvet case on the table. Have you been playing with these guys? Hiram asked. I've told Ahmad he should let you sit in. I know, Dad, but these guys think they're big time. So, where are you playing? My guitar friend, we're working on a CD. You got a studio? He's got a Mac with GarageBand. We use his parents' basement. How are you going to market it? Ah, this is a demo. We're trying to get backing. The two of you? We got an electric bass on some tracks, and his girlfriend plays cello. In basic blues? Early rock and folk. She's not bad. She's a music major. They ordered from waitress Cheryl. Hiram knew her from previous visits. He didn't like the size of her nose with dark, deep wells for nostrils. She was a little overweight, but she had breasts the size of two ripe cantaloupes that enriched his day when she leaned over the table to swipe cloth over the surface. Are you still in school, Hiram asked her. No, she said. I want to be a masseuse. Hiram held her gaze for an instant to see if she might be interested, but she looked away. As the band set up on stage, Hiram waved to get the piano player's attention. Then he held up his Big River harp he took from his side pocket. The piano player flashed a thumbs up. There were only twenty or so people in the place. It was early. Hiram finished eating and went to the restroom to clean his teeth with a finger and a paper towel. After the band played an opening number, Hiram approached the bandstand. 
The piano player stood at the piano and faced the audience. We have the honor to welcome Dr. McDowell here tonight, a surgeon from the university. He's always welcome here at Tritone. Hiram mounted the bandstand, whispered to the drummer, shook the hands of the guitarist and the amplified acoustic bass player, and stepped to a stand-up microphone. They played Lonely Avenue in E. The bass player sang. Hiram wailed on harp. Although sparse, the applause was enthusiastic, but Hiram didn't smile. I deserve more than that, he thought. After Stormy Monday in F, the applause was less than for the first number. The band broke, and all the members thanked Hiram for the set. Hiram sat down, dipping his harps in a water glass and wiping them down with a paper napkin. Did you ask him? Billy asked. He put you off. But Hiram had forgotten to ask. Maybe later, Hiram said. Piss me off, too. You're twice as good as any of them. Billy swigged on a bottle of beer, disappointment on his face. Don't get down, Hiram said. It will come together for you. When they got home, Hiram was exhausted from time differences in travel and was asleep in minutes. Carol entered and stood in the dark, barely visible. Hiram, she said sharply, wake up. The venom in her voice woke him instantly. I know about Rima, she said. Everyone knows. Oh, shit. Hiram put his hands behind his head, his gaze in the direction of Carol's silhouette. I won't have it, Hiram. It's demeaning. Hiram wasn't alert yet. I don't get it, he said. You won't deny it? What? You're living with this woman. How do you figure I live here, he said. How humiliating. Hiram let silence isolate them from each other. He finally said, Look, Carol, I've never promised fidelity. I've accepted your affairs, she said, but I can't tolerate living with another woman, and a woman of color, too. Hiram angered. Carol's sense of possession irritated him. He was who he was. She'd always known that. She had no right to be indignant. I love you, he said, straining for sincerity. It was a marriage of convenience, but he did think he loved her at one point before the marriage. Stop it, she said. Accept it. Don't degrade me. He slipped down in the bed and pulled the covers over him. I've never tried to degrade you. I don't care enough at this point, he thought. You love her? Marry her. She's a comfort to me when I'm away. You admit it? And you won't give her up? It's halfway around the world. What difference does it make? I'm your wife. Fine, but I'm not changing. Carol gasped. Is she crying, he thought. He couldn't tell for sure. We'll go on, he said, but you need to change your attitude. It's best for both of us and for the kids. And I keep taking care of Billy? If you don't want to, I'll figure something out. I don't know if I can face the world thinking that people know. Few people know. Liar. Say la vie, he said softly. Carol hissed. I'm considering divorce, Hiram. Hiram turned on his side away from her. Did you hear me? Your choice, he said. Chapter 2 
In Hiram's mind, election as regent to the board of directors of the International College of Surgeons had lifted him far above the 60,000-plus surgeons in the world. But for a number of years, he knowed being on the board was not enough. He had to be president. There were things to do in healthcare and education, and ascending to national prominence as the president of the International College would give him the authority he needed. Hiram had flown first class from his latest periodic visit to the Foundation Hospital he created in Nepal and was the first off the connection to Chicago, where he would lead a conference of state leaders on delivery of health care to the uninsured. Once he cleared customs in the U.S. concourse, he went straight to the baggage claim carousel of Delta 4534. He waited 15 minutes, reading, replying, and deleting emails on his iPhone until deplane passengers arrived for their luggage. Hiram looked for Michael O'Leary, M.D., M.B.A., F.A.C.S., from San Francisco, a key member of the college's Board of Governors Executive Committee. He waved to Michael to get his attention. I know what you want, Hiram. It's not the right time, Michael said as Hiram approached. Wrong, Michael. Perfect time, Hiram led Michael to a second carousel where there were fewer people. They stood hidden by a six-foot diameter concrete support post painted off-white. Look, Hiram began, I need the votes you can deliver. I don't sell votes, Michael said, waiting for the conveyor belt to start. What will it take, Hiram asked. You deserve better in this organization, Michael. You work hard. You got the skills. I'm offended, Hiram. Jesus, this isn't a bribe. I'm building a new direction for the college putting it back as the world leader in surgery. I've got to get elected first, and then I've got to have new leadership, new ideas, new staff in the right places. You're integral to that. You're offering executive director. I'd have to resign from the board. You're trying to get me off the board, Hiram? Is that what's behind this? Never, Hiram said. Well, you've tried that before. God damn it, not with you. Hey, you've got experience running executive committees. I want you running the organization. Trust me. Michael bit his upper lip, a habit when he was thinking. It is true, he said. Academics doesn't hold much excitement for me now. Perfect time to change, Hiram said. But it's a career risk. I need to think about it. Christ, you've been wanting it for a couple years. Don't lie to yourself. This is a new career. I'll put you on the president's health care task force, too. I'll be co-chair in the fall. Uh, my family, Michael said. Hiram took Michael's arm to start him walking toward the security exit. Angie will be proud, Hiram said. And the kids, too. You're the right person. Look at the realities. Tom's a lousy director. We need to dump him. He's a friend, Michael said. But a shitty director. Can you wait for a few days, Michael asked. Hiram took a deep breath. I wish, but I need a head count. I've got commitments to make, Hiram paused. You hail a cab. The offer's gone. The conveyor for luggage cranked up. Well, Hiram said, looking at Michael. Michael nodded almost imperceptibly. Good choice, Hiram said, concerned with Michael's tentative reaction his unmistakable lack of enthusiasm. Why is he so hesitant, Hiram thought. It's what he's always wanted. 
I wish I could trust you, Michael said. He walked to the head of the conveyor, and Hiram left without further words. Hiram hailed a taxi. Michael had a reputation as ambitious and driven, but a straight shooter, honest, never out of season, or over the limit. Hiram wasn't sure he could deliver the directorship. But first I need to get elected, he thought. I'll deal with the wrinkles later. In the months since their meeting at the airport, Hiram avoided Michael and gave no words of appreciation for Michael's help. Michael swung the seven decisive votes for nomination, and Hiram successfully gathered support of the membership. Michael waited expectantly for the announcement of his appointment as executive director. Chapter 3 The night of Hiram's induction into the college, the auditorium bristled with a formal festivity. Dignitaries sat in black robes and chairs lined in four rows on the stage. As the new president, Hiram stood tall, his hands resting on a flag-draped podium facing the audience, his image gleaming from four giant screens suspended from the auditorium ceiling and projecting to the 7,000-plus surgeons and families in the audience. He thanked family and friends. He introduced new officers and honored colleagues. Few could fault his dynamism his captaincy, his vision, and Michael could not suppress a wave of envy as Hiram outlined proposed changes in the administrative structure. Michael's heart raced. Hiram closed his speech. And finally, it gives me great pleasure to announce that yesterday the new executive director of the college has officially been appointed. His experience as a board member will be invaluable. He is cherished for his academic contributions. He has an MBA and is chair of one of the most influential departments of surgery in the world. Please honor his appointment with a round of applause, Dr. Tom Gardner. Michael's insides trembled. He'd been passed over. Hiram had welched on a promise. Michael silently vowed to crush him. He'd have to wait for the opportunities but he would relish seeing Hiram suffer lifelong. In the lobby, after the meeting, Michael avoided colleagues who would know him. He recognized the attractive middle-aged TV journalist who approached and cornered him near the exit, Paige Sterling. He'd seen one of her TV segments on Week's End about excavation of bones of a medieval king. She was a top news celebrity, fashion-conscious a curt interrogator, and champion of women's rights and minority representation. She stepped up and held out her hand that he shook. She had a firm grasp. You're Michael O'Leary. They told me at the information desk. Michael stared. He disliked aggressive reporters, especially women. What's the direction of the college with the new leadership? Page continued. Uh, it's not an appropriate question for me, Miss Sterling. Ask the new president. I apologize, she said. I was told you were, as chairman of the executive committee, among those who nominated and supported Dr. McDowell for the presidency. She can't get an interview with Hiram, Michael thought. I'm second best to fill airtime. You've got it wrong, he said. I'm chair of the executive committee of the Board of Governors. But you supported Dr. McDowell. That's confidential, he said. 
I'm still interested in your thoughts for the future. You've been a member of the college for many years. He wondered if she knew what Hiram was really like. He answered, Well, the college will support better access to health care for all, continued advancement in control and treatment of disease, and address an affordable, comprehensive health care system. Will women play a larger role in the activities of the college? Paige Sterling asked. I'm sure they will. Already the number of women surgeons in specialties and in general surgery is increasing. You know, I understand there were only 200 women in a total of 3,300 certified neurosurgeons last year. There were only two women neurosurgeons in the 1960s. That's a 100% increase, Michael countered with the pride of being part of an administration that let women into an organization the world saw as an exclusive men's club. I'm sure it's not that small a representation in other specialties now, he added. But my point is still valid, isn't it? Women do not play a big role in surgery. It is true of the past, I agree, but a new era is coming and already women are making significant contributions not only in patient care, but in research and education. Uh, but what of the minority representation? Is that increasing? Michael endured a few more questions and then excused himself. Uh, here's my card, Miss Sterling said. Call me if you ever have anything newsworthy about the college. I'd be glad to help. You look to destroy, humiliate, expose, and decapitate, Michael thought. And I'm not the smoking gun. Go for McDowell but he said nothing. Good day, she said. Chapter 4 Summer For months, Hiram and Carol existed in a tenuous truce that barely masked Carol's anger and Hiram's indifference to her discontent. Hiram stayed to himself and made no attempt to conciliate. Carol avoided him whenever possible and never threatened divorce again when she had the rare opportunity to confront him. She has too much to lose. As long as she knows that, it will give me peace, Hiram believed. On the weekend of Carol's birthday, Hiram had a two-day meeting with the program committee for the college to check out the New Orleans Convention Center as a meeting place for the International College in 08. On the Friday night before returning to Denver, he heard of a jazz club on Napoleon that didn't discourage semi-professionals from sitting in. Fat Frank and his Revelation Blues Band was on, and Hiram played along. The singer was Maria Petulant, born Porowski in Bedford-Stuyvesant. Glorious she was at 38, a full figure of middle life that seemed to want to burst out of the white country prince shift with flowers and insects that was tied at the waist with a rope belt. Her black hair hung eight inches below shoulder length and was held back with a wooden clothespin for a country effect. She had dark brown eyes the color of rosewood on the trim of a handmade guitar, eyes that didn't look away, and smiled with pleasure when looking at Hiram. He knew she would be a great lay, and he arranged to sit in with the band the next night, a Saturday, so on Sunday when the band didn't play, he could take Maria to Mangrove Plantation upriver for the day. He'd leave early Monday morning for Denver, and he'd be back before noon with the time change. He'd miss Carol's birthday, but that didn't seem important. 
He took Maria to dine at the Upriver Plantation Convention Center. She'd bought a new red dress, probably from One Canal, designer off the rack with a scoop neckline that showed cleavage. It was revealing but a far cry from elegant, if not a little deep south tacky. After dinner, they went to the suite he'd rented with a river view and with a bottle of wine she'd liked placed by management on the nightstand. After a little chit-chat, they screwed on and off until after midnight. The draperies on the large picture window were drawn back so they could see from the bed the traffic on the river a few hundred yards away just beyond the levee. The ship lights were mostly dim, except for a few glaring spots on the bridge. The freighter's nooks and crannies were dark with shadows formed by the pewter glow of a half-moon well above the horizon. Maria poured herself another glass of wine from an almost empty bottle on the nightstand and propped herself up on a pillow. Hiram turned to her, draping his arm over her chest and cupping her breast in his relaxed hand. You played well tonight, she said. You sang like a mockingbird perched on a honeysuckle vine in summer, Hiram said, smiling and trying to mask his innate sarcasm. I want to believe you, she said. You aren't from around here. I told you. I forgot, Hiram said. Born in New York, lived in Louisiana, going on 25 years now. You work mostly here? Yeah, sometimes Mobile, rarely Atlanta. How'd you start out? Folk, protest stuff mainly. Then blues, sang with Professor Blackbeard. Tennessee red and guitar. Pat Mallory on drums. Tommy Hernandez on bass most of the time. We opened for a year for a volcanic eruption when they did their coast-to-coast -coast tour. Hiram vaguely remembered the tour. Early rock and roll wasn't strong for him, except as a route for blues riffs. They stayed silent for a while. Hiram pleasantly relaxed. When she finished her wine, she rolled over and put her arm around him and her head on his shoulder. She smelled of sex and dissipating perfume. The wine on her breath leaked out whiffs of flowers and citrus fruits. You got family? she asked. Jesus, don't mention it. My wife's birthday last night. You forgot? Like being here with you, Hiram smiled. Oh, bullshit. No, no, it's a lousy marriage, Hiram said. Why is that, baby? You've been married too long. Number three, only a few years, but I don't like her. Always? The second month of wedded bliss. And you stick with her? She takes care of the kids. Where are you from? Louisville, originally. I'm in Denver now. That's where she lives. You deserve better, honey. I never please her. Never know what she wants. Maria took her time sipping the last of the wine from the bottle her empty glass on the floor beside the bed. She wants love, baby. You ain't got much of that for her. Not true, Hiram said, becoming irritated. Not the sex, baby. Woman wants to be coveted like water to a drowning man. Hiram's jaw clenched as he rolled over. I get no sex, he thought, and nothing else. I give her everything, he said. I support her to lose her kids. She just wants you to love her. How do you know what she wants? 
A woman knows, she said, staring at him. She couldn't find a better husband, Hiram said. Maria laughed. Then you? Fuck off, he said, without humor. What'd I say? I'm not to blame for her foul moods. He was getting annoyed. Every man says that, she said. I'm not every man, and I'm not to blame. And that drives your wife to depression. That I ain't got no responsibility for how you feel attitude. Believe me, I know what it means. You don't know shit, Hiram said. Her assertions were out of line. You're blind as a bat, she retorted. A woman's nightmare. Hiram stayed silent as blood pulsed to his head. What did this marble-brained idiot know, he thought. She's a loser, and she criticizes me about Carol. Carol was a bitch. He didn't make her that way, and he didn't like being judged. Look, honey, I'm sorry. What pissed you off? Maria asked, a touch of fear in her voice. She's got a drumstick up her ass, he said, with finality, but with a whiff of conciliation. Not my fault. Why do you feel guilty then, she said. God damn it, he said. He wasn't guilty. He had nothing to feel guilty about. Ah, she's menopausal, he said. That doesn't make a difference. Bullshit. I ain't seen a period in a couple years. I ain't pregnant, and I haven't changed. And you're not that great a lay, Hiram said. If you care for her at all, help her get through it. Not worth the time, Hiram said. You're sick, Maria said. He wanted to spit on her. What a turd. But he held back. Don't take it out on me. She got out of the bed, her eyes fearful, as if he actually struck her. I'm not wrong here, Hiram said. Hey, I don't give a damn one way or the other, she said, her voice weak. You got a big mouth. She began to get dressed. I thought this night might mean something to you, she said loudly, regaining some self-confidence. You're a nutcase. Shut your goddamn mouth. Zip tight, my man, she said. Never again to speak to a psycho. I am not crazy. You weird, man. You scare me. Get out, he said. Hiram didn't move even when she was almost dressed. Hey, asshole, she said. Get me back to town. Fuck you. She picked up the phone, told the night man to call her a car. She waited in an armchair looking at the river. Hiram rolled over, occasionally ignoring her. Maria answered the phone. The car was here. She took enough money for fare from Hiram's wallet that was on the dresser, put it in her purse. He'd expected she'd want money, and he made no move to stop her. You are one sick son of a bitch, she said as she closed the door. Well, he didn't give a damn what she thought. It took him more than an hour to drift into an unsettled sleep, but by morning, he'd almost forgotten everything Maria said. Chapter 5 Summer, 2000 After his humiliation from Hiram's passing him over for executive director, Michael O'Leary thought only of revenge. 
He met with Denise Barzi at a bar during an NIH-sponsored research meeting in Seattle. It was the first time he'd met her face-to-face, although he'd collaborated with her by phone on a conference call for a project. She'd left Hiram McDowell's lab to take a job in industry a few months ago. This was the opportunity Michael had hoped for. Denise dressed in a white blouse, a tan skirt, and flats without hose. Her hair was cut short, and she wore heavy black-rimmed myopic glasses. Her life was her career. She never married. Michael kept the introductions brief. He bought her a glass of wine and ordered a Perrier for himself with a twist. Uh, This is confidential, I would hope, for both of us, he said. Your secretary said it was recruiting, she said. You don't miss academics, he asked. I like my new job. She fingered some trail mix on the bar, mouthed some, and chewed some before she answered. I do miss academics, actually. Industry's taken iron fist control over scientific process in the laboratory. It's more intense than I ever imagined. Unethical? She paused. Yes, it's all profit. Any thought of searching for truth be damned. But academics has turned mercenary, too, he said, even in basic research. I don't understand. Profit. Patents. Researching only what has clear potential for steady income with unlimited growth potential. The government grant support is dried up, so labs are dependent on the profiteers. I'm discouraged, she said. There's a rumor you left Hiram McDowell for more than better pay. I have no comment on rumors. But you do have your reasons. I had objections, but I was treated fairly. You were never given an academic promotion. Ten years plus. No different than many. But you were deserving, I've checked. She frowned, turning sullen and sipped her wine. What do you really want, Dr. O'Leary? I'm interested in Hiram McDowell. In the clinical trial that's underway using the drug for suppression of organ rejections, the one that is still in investigative status, there are discrepancies in the published data on the basic scene. Concerns about side effects. Questions about results in animal studies being transferable to human studies. I'm a bench researcher, Denise said. In Hiram's lab, you knew about these concerns. It's privileged information. It's published in clinical trials, and there has been a question of deaths. Directly related? Highly suspicious, Michael said. I did nothing wrong, Denise said. I'm not accusing you, but you don't need to be involved directly. Just being a part of the research and knowing about the data discrepancies that could injure patients is enough to make you culpable. I did nothing, she said. I'm not asking you for a confession. I just want to know if you think McDowell knew about the errors and ignored them. Denise paused and remained motionless with her head down and her hands clasped in her lap for many minutes. Why do you want to know? She finally said. I want to prevent it from happening again. A waiter approached and Michael ordered another round. Not for me, Denise said. Michael placed the order anyway. There if you want it, he said. 
What do you want me to do? You have access to the original data. Let us review it. What if something is wrong? Something is wrong. We want to know if it's intentional. We? The Ethics Committee of the College? Will you do it? She shook her head, undecided. Don't say no, Michael said. I have to think about it, Denise said. Before Michael O'Leary left for home two days later, Marzi called and said she'd look into his suspicions. She'd contact him in a few weeks, but it only took two days. She confirmed serious discrepancies in the data used to justify a clinical trial. Memos indicated Hiram McDowell knew about the irregularities. She'd send documentation. O'Leary contacted the Health and Human Services Office of Research Integrity and alerted the dean of Hiram's School of Medicine as to his action, as a courtesy on the surface, but really to initiate an internal investigation. He then prepared a full report for the Ethics Committee. Chapter 6 Hiram found Billy the easiest child to manage. Anne and Sophie were high-maintenance and always needed money, but Billy rarely asked for more than his allowance. Billy had no interest in science or medicine. Realistically, Billy didn't have the intellect, but Hiram loved his son. Billy's passion was music, pop, rock and roll, jazz, blues. A perfect profession. Denver. Billy. Billy spent a weekend with stepmother Carol and her girls. After dinner on Friday night, he looked at classic videos of great drummers, taking notes and marking good segments for repeated study. With sticks on a pad, he worked out some patterns. The next morning at breakfast, Carol said to Billy, Wash the windows. I was going to campus, he said. Do the kitchen, the rec room, and the bedrooms. He knew either the maids or the yard man did such things. I've never done it before, he said. Carol scoffed at his hesitancy and said the yard man had the flu and the new maids didn't do windows except on special occasions. And then only in the kitchen. She's been fighting with Dad on the phone again, Billy thought. Couldn't we wait until the yard man is better, he asked. If he's really sick at all, he thought. He might not be back. Just do it, she said. He finished the outside windows in two and a half hours. He was working his way through the inside. He knocked on Tasha's half-open door. Come in, she called to him. She was still in bed staring at her wall-mounted TV. A rerun of I Love Lucy was on with no sound. Okay to do the windows, he asked. She shrugged. She was propped up on two overstuffed pillows. Her shoulders were bare, and she had a can of orange crush in her left hand. She pulled the coverlet and sheet a few inches over her front. There were only two windows. He opened the drapes and raised the roll-up window shades. The light streamed in and made her wince. She uttered a wet sound of distaste. She looked the younger of the sisters, and she was. Small, pouting lips, oversized eyes and a small nose slightly upturned. You'll miss the game, Billy said. I don't like football, she said. Not even Colorado? It's dirty. 
I'll do the windows, he said. He didn't care what she thought, really. He finished and was pulling down shades and closing drapes. Do you want to watch the original Halloween, she said, switching to cable and turning on the sound. I don't think so, Tasha, but thanks. I've got Rosemary's baby. She reached to the nightstand for the disc. The cover slipped down, her plump breast exposed. Only her right nipple visible, a flesh pink close to pastel. She found and fiddled uselessly trying to get the disc out of the sleeve to make her exposure seem unintentional. Maybe some other time, he said awkwardly. Tasha was a lot more woman than he thought, but she seemed desperate and he felt sorry for her. A week later on Saturday, the day was sunny and warm, and Billy put on bathing trunks and a short-sleeve Hawaiian print sports shirt to lie by the pool on an inflated mattress and listen to drum music. Tasha came from the house in a red bikini with a towel wrapped around her shoulders. She dropped the towel and lowered herself into the pool, the waterline rising slowly over her full hips, darkening the triangles of cloth over her breast. She stopped herself from going under with her hand on the side of the pool. She dog-paddled to a plastic raft where she lay front down. Her exposure made him uncomfortable and full of guilt because he wanted to stare and any desire for a swim was now forgotten. That night, his father was out of town. Carol was playing bridge with neighbors. Candace had a date, and Tasha had not returned from a mall adventure with her girlfriends. He walked the treadmill in one of the garages, then ate warmed-over pizza and retired to his room to watch sports, lying on his bed in his boxer shorts. He fell asleep with the TV on and was awakened to the feel of Tasha next to him. She was stroking him with her hand to arousal, freeing him through the slit in his boxer shorts. He didn't speak. He stared at the ceiling, confused as to what he wanted and what he should do. Soon he moaned involuntarily, his hands grasping the covers beneath him. She took him in, her movements shaking the bed. After she climaxed, she moved up to lay her head on his chest. He held her hesitantly, suddenly buffeted by a wave of shame. Don't, he said as she tried to stimulate him again. She laughed softly. Please go, he said. We'll get caught. He heard the garage door open, Carol probably returning from her bridge game. Tasha hurried back to her room. He was ashamed. He'd ignored his principles. The next night, Tasha woke him at 2 a.m. Mom's gone for the night, she said, and Candace went to her boyfriend's. She won't come home if Mom is gone. He opened the door. She slipped by and taking off her robe and letting it fall to the floor, crawling headfirst into his bed, her buttocks jiggling in the dim light from the hall. She turned upright and pulled up the covers. Don't stand there, she said. Billy closed the door, his heart beating fast. After satisfaction, Tasha held him in her arms. Can I listen to your CD? It won't be finished for a while, he said. I'm recording again next week. At least that was what the guitarist said. That's so cool, she said. She tried to make love to him again, but he was exhausted and unable to respond. The next morning, Sunday, he called his dad, who picked him up, and they went to the Broncos game. Tasha wasn't there when he returned to the house. He lost all resistance to needing her. He couldn't get her out of his mind. 
On Tuesday, Billy skipped classes to drive to his friends at the guitarist's place. He went to the basement. Had he made a mistake? No one was there. And there was no guitar, no cello, no recording equipment, no bass. His drums were dismantled and stacked without care near the clothes dryer in the laundry room. He called his friend. Music played in the background. Yes, they were recording today, but they were using a studio downtown. Yes, there was a drum in the background. And snare and traps. They'd taken on a new drummer. His friend was sorry not to have let him know. They wouldn't need Billy. They were re-recording the tracks they'd laid down together, using a lot of bongos for some of the numbers. Of course he knew Billy could handle anything, but it was the new drummer's specialty. Billy rang off and sat on the stair steps for a half an hour, his head in his hands, before carrying his drum set to the car. He went to the house instead of school. Tasha was there. My band dumped me, he said. She kissed him and led him to his room in their bed. She made gentle love to him, and as they lay savoring the aftermath, she looked beautiful to him, and he was proud in the belief that she loved him without reservation. A month later, Hiram escorted Carol to her department's yearly faculty reception in the Mercedes to match the occasion. She looked attractive in a green knee-length dress with a V-neck and a necklace of double-strand pearls. He wore a required tuxedo with a plaid cummerbund in red and green and a tie to match. Billy's depressed, Hiram, Carol said. His band won't use him anymore. Hiram frowned. When? I don't know. Probably weeks ago. He's really hurting. How do you know? Tasha told me. The next day, after finishing his surgery schedule, Hiram took Billy to buy the best set of drums and accessories available a superior sound system, instruction books, and play-alongs. Hiram called friends of friends and found the best teacher with the best reputation for excellence in the city and purchased prepaid lessons for Billy. Two days later, the merchant delivered the equipment, which Carol insisted be installed in the basement away from the living area. Within a couple of weeks, Carol told Hiram Billy spent less time at school and more time at the house, days and nights now. He practiced almost ceaselessly at home, and his new teacher had arranged for him to fill in for a high school blues band in Aurora. Billy's out of his funk, Carol announced to Hiram. Chapter 7 Chicago Michael O'Leary The door to the boardroom where the Ethics Committee of the International College of Surgeons was meeting was closed. Two men in suits sat in two of four armless chairs back to the wall in a long, wide corridor. Michael nodded to the men and sat. Why aren't they ready for me, he thought. The chair was too small for his large frame, and the edge of the seat cut an uncomfortable line in his hamstrings. The two men were called in. Michael waited. He reviewed notes from his briefcase. The Ethics Committee served a judiciary function in addition to its long-range planning and white paper policy statement duties. He'd known every member of the committee for years as close colleagues. Many were stay-with-us-when-you're-in-town friends. This meeting should go down well, he thought, and Hiram should be disciplined. He's a lying bastard. 
Thirty minutes later, the door opened and the committee's administrative assistant led Michael into the boardroom. Six committee members and the committee chairman sat in armchairs around an oval table for twelve. Empty chairs had been removed from the table except for a lone straight-back chair opposite the end where the chairman sat. All members stood and Michael shook their hands. The chair, Simon, Tom, Leon, Harold, Sylvia, Peavy, Sands. Michael laid folders from his case on the table. The chair spoke to the purpose of the meeting. Minutes would be transcribed by the administrative assistant. Hiram was accused of scientific misconduct. The committee, in its judiciary function, must determine the validity of the charges and if scientific misconduct had occurred with Hiram's involvement, then make recommendations for disciplinary action against Hiram to be approved by the Board of Regents. The chair noted Michael O'Leary had volunteered to collect and evaluate evidence in his role as chair of the research committee. The chair ended his introduction. The committee thanks Dr. O'Leary for his work and his presence, he said. It's a routine start, Michael thought. Everyone knows I hate the son of a bitch. That might raise a few pockets of sympathy for Hiram. I'll have to be careful. Michael presented the evidence. Hiram was principal investigator on a trial that it was a double-blind study on the effectiveness of a new drug. Four essential papers were published for the lab with Hiram as senior author. Papers that established sites of action for the drug and carefully monitored effects and complications in laboratory animals. In the clinical trial, there had been morbidity and mortality that had not been expected. A faculty member had re-examined the published data and found discrepancies in statistical analysis. Serious errors were discovered. A faculty member alerted the Office of Research Integrity. The clinical trial was halted when complications were suspected and the ORI imposed serious restriction on the lab's activity. On the suspicions alone, the school dismissed two of the researchers. Lawsuits were threatened by patients enrolled in the trial. The situation never reached a national level of exposure because of persistent unrest in the Middle East. But the faculty member, a member of the International College of Surgeons, felt the college should review misconduct and consider action for the college to express its findings and reaction to the situation. Good presentation, Michael, the chair said, and allowed half an hour for questions from the committee. Uh, we all know Hiram. It's hard to believe he knew anything about the lab misconduct, Leon said. He's driven, obsessive, compulsive, probably bipolar, he knows the best after-dinner jokes, Sands said. No, I'm serious, Leon countered. I've known Hiram to always be honest. Are there patents involved? Sylvia asked Michael. There are always patents, Harold said. Hiram has signed a contract with a drug company which patented aspects of the drug. Hiram's lab director holds two patents on mechanisms developed during scientific investigation. Hiram personally holds three patents on various aspects of the drug and the production process. Still, we don't know Hiram knew about the misconduct, Tom said. It's not proven to my satisfaction. The lab falsified results, the chair said. That's clear. The question is, did Hiram know? Was he involved in the falsification? Punishment has already been meted by the school and the ORI to the investigators. 
Hiram's a clinician who built a laboratory by hiring the best Ph.D. he could find and supporting him with competent staff. He would present the basic research questions to be answered, but he wouldn't do the bench work. It would be easy to verify. I bet he had little to do with the intellectual input into the lab. He doesn't have time. Well, he wasn't P.I. in the clinical trial, Sands said. I think he's capable of ignoring truths for financial gain, Sylvia said. He would think the possibilities of being found out if the drug was found to be highly effective and safe would be minimal. It would be a calculated risk. Every chair would do the same, Sands said. Well, the ORI believed he had responsibility. He's been barred from applying for federal funding for a decade, Tom said. Investigators directly responsible have been dismissed. Journals who published the false data were forced to publish retractions. I studied the retractions, Harold said. I got advice from our statisticians. There is no doubt evil was involved. This was a quest for gold, and scientific truths were sublimated, falsified. Okay, falsified to initiate a clinical trial the clinicians thought would bring positive results that would allow FDA approval and marketing. I still don't think Hiram knew, Sands said. I've known him too long. I've run the Boston Marathon with him. He doesn't cheat in sports. How can you say that? You don't really know about his science. And what if he used performance-enhancing drugs to win a marathon? You wouldn't know that either. He just wouldn't. Either way, the chair broke in. It's off the subject of scientific misconduct. It's lying, Sylvia said. He's been punished enough by innuendo without proof, Tom said. What do you think we should do, Harold asked Michael. Michael swallowed. I got to say this right, he thought. Any sign that he'd lost objectivity because he really disliked McDowell might cancel any significant action by the committee. Most of you know Hiram promised me the position of executive director and never followed through. I don't want that to in any way cloud understanding of Hiram's culpability here. I speak as chair of the research committee committed to carry out my duties regarding a serious incident of misconduct. And I do think Hiram's showing dishonesty. And I think there's almost total belief in those who've investigated that regardless of Hiram's state of knowledge and involvement in the cover-up, he had the responsibility for knowing the truth and vetting all expressions of data interpretation. He was chair of the department and at times senior author. It was his lab. He was prime investigator on two of the NIH grants awarded the laboratory for this project, and he signed the contract with the drug company for the monetization of research discoveries. I believe Hiram should be held responsible. I don't pretend to know to what degree he should be held responsible, but I do not believe the college should be seen to protect one of its own when a serious misconduct has resulted in pain, suffering, and death in the clinical trial. Deep silence persisted for many seconds. I agree, said Tom. Me too, said Harold. I do think you have personal bias here, Michael Sands said. We do not need to vote today, the chair said. We will allow Hiram to face the accusation at the next meeting the 19th of next month. We'll make recommendations after that to the Judiciary Committee. 
I don't think he deserves to continue membership in this organization, Tom said. He needs to resign as chairman of the board, Leon said. There is time to make considered decisions, the chair said. I ask for complete confidentiality. I will also seal the minutes of this discussion until after the board's action, if there is action. Thank you, Michael, the chair said, standing. Other members stood, and there were handshakes with Michael and every committee member around the table. Chapter 8 Hiram was called before the Judiciary Committee of the International College. He was led by the secretary of the committee into the conference room from the hall where he had been waiting for over an hour. He was directed to sit at the end of the table, away from committee members, in the same chair Michael O'Leary had occupied when he appeared before the Ethics Committee a few weeks earlier. The chair started the meeting, noting the date, time, and attending members for the record. Hiram, the chair said, we thank you for coming. We know it's a difficult time, and we know your feelings for all of us involved must be mixed. But we're eager to hear your story, clarify accusations regarding misconduct, and make a decision on what action we will recommend to the board for disciplinary action, if any. Hiram shifted almost imperceptibly in his chair as he swallowed unintentionally. The charges against Hiram were scientific misconduct in the laboratory but there was also interest in the accusations of excess improprieties in his foundation management. What happened in the laboratory, Hiram? The chair asked. I take full responsibility, Hiram said. It was my laboratory. I was principal investigator on two NIH grants at the time. Data were altered, data that eventually led to a clinical trial Complications occurred based on your scientific results, the chair said. The data were altered by a postdoc lead investigator. His involvement has been identified and he's been dismissed. He was reprimanded by the school and denied the privilege to apply for further grants for ten years. Not by you, the chair asked. Not me, Hiram replied. The chair checked with the meeting recorder to be sure Hiram's denial was in the minutes. How did it happen? the chair asked. I trusted him, Hiram said. Assumed his results were valid. He'd worked for me for over twenty years. Why now? the chair asked. Money, I think. Some of his funding was from drug companies who pressured him to publish results. And although difficult to prove, there is a suspicion that he was remunerated in ways not above board. And I've looked carefully at all his results over the years in my lab. I found two other areas of potential discrepancies, but nothing blatant like the heirs now under scrutiny. Uh, you didn't review the erroneous data yourself? Urology asked. Obviously not thoroughly enough, Hiram replied. I had two independent reviews of the statistical analysis and the papers before submission. There were no alerts from those reviewers. Still, my name was senior author on the papers, and I should have taken the responsibility to check carefully. An error of oversight, the rask cast? Yes, Hiram said. And the clinical deaths? No deaths. And the complications could be from disease, not the treatments. 
Who determined that, the chair asked. Questions were raised both by internal and external review. And you agree with those findings? Agree that the scientific mismanagement did not result in clinical complications? I believe that, Hiram said. Yes. The clinical effect of the error was that patients were treated with a regimen that had no effect on their disease process. For that, I'm deeply sorry. General Surgery spoke up. Hey, Hiram. There have been charges that you've taken financial advantage of the foundation you founded. I know we've been focused on the scientific misconduct, but the question has been raised by two board members. It's become an issue in our decision for recommendations. I don't think that has relevance to the charges at hand, Hiram said. I agree, the chair said. Aaron, from General Surgery, raised a hand for recognition. Uh, repeatedly, we've stated that financial miscreants should not be considered in the judgment of scientific misconduct. But we've had pressure from members. What's the true nature of these financial mismanagement charges? Aaron, Hiram began. I've been successful in building a hospital in Nepal, staffing that hospital, developing educational opportunities for U.S. doctors in surgical training. I've negotiated through difficult political opposition at home and abroad. I've included local physicians and caregivers in all developmental aspects of the project, and I did it by hiring managers and fundraisers with connections to those who have money to give to philanthropic causes for health improvement. My effort has been international, and the support has been worldwide. And your benefits? I don't understand, Hiram said. How did you gain financially? There are rumors. All financial arrangements with the Foundation are transparent. There is nothing that could be questioned. It's charity and very successful, Hiram said. Your salary? Aaron asked. Oh, varies. Half a million? Around that. Finally, it was over. Hiram stood and thanked the committee for their time and understanding. He paused to see what was appropriate. Unless someone started to shake hands, he knew his initiation of a sign of friendship might seem like an effort to influence the group. He waited, then left the room in silence without shaking a single hand and without a single spontaneous thank you from even one committee member. Hiram feared he would be dismissed from the College of Surgeons and the result would be leaked to the public, and it would ruin his career. The consensus of the committee was that Hiram had made many mistakes, but that every surgeon has some moments in his or her career that might lead to the troubles Hiram found himself in. Although opinion varied, most committee members thought Hiram was not directly responsible for research misconduct. Almost all thought his success at fundraising was beyond reproach without intense independent investigation. The committee members agreed to vote on a reprimand if necessary, but none would vote for dismissal from the college, which would extinguish Hiram's career. Committee members were too close to Hiram's path to success to believe more severe punishment was warranted or necessary. Chapter 9 
Tasha was pregnant with Billy's child. They had to marry as quickly as possible. Carol never faltered in her love for Tasha, and she had to convince Hiram to support them. She did not have resources to help. Portland, Oregon, 2001 Carol waited in the rooftop lounge of a boutique hotel that overlooked the expressway. She hadn't seen Hiram in weeks, well before she knew of Tasha's condition. This was to be a weekend together. She knew he expected gratitude for this gesture to be with her, but she would not condescend to pandering. She resented being consistently ignored, or even forgotten most of the time, and it was worse now, in the third year of their marriage. She was his wife, but not his friend or companion. Had he loved her? No. But she doubted he loved anyone except maybe his children in an odd sort of ancestral way. Her value to him? She had filled a need in his perception of how things should be for the public to perceive his family life. And she watched Billy. Not enough scrutiny, Hiram would argue. Well, this was her chance to use her time with him to settle Tasha's pregnancy. She would do it when Hiram arrived here at the hotel from the airport. They'd have dinner tonight. It had to be tonight. Tomorrow, Saturday, he'd be gone climbing Mount Hood with Peak Waring, a surgeon from Eugene he'd known since they were in school together while she went to the museum and shopped. She'd met Peak twice when he'd visited Denver. She found him arrogant and dismissive and was thankful she did not have to be with him for this weekend. Hiram climbed with Peak for training and because Peak paid for all the excursions. Hiram sarcastically chided him for not being a world-class climber, something Carol found ugly and demeaning for both Peak and Hiram. Peak wanted Hiram's admiration so much he laughed excessively at Hiram's degrading double entendre teasing, distasteful behavior for grown men. Peak was a buffoon and a patsy. But if Peak and Hiram could get together before she could confront Hiram about Tasha's baby, she'd be ignored and lose any chance of fairness. And talking on Sunday would not be possible. Hiram planned to go to a brunch alone at an off-ray downtown hotel where a blues band played featuring flat-out Smith on harmonica. Hiram would sit in and trade a few fours, as he usually did when he came to Portland. Her cell vibrated a text. Hiram was on his way from the airport. Hiram ordered a steak medium-rare with no sauce, an unadorned baked potato, and extra mixed fresh vegetables steamed all done on the side. Carol sipped a Manhattan as Hiram ate. She waited until he was served his entree. Tosh is pregnant, she said. With barely a pause and a slight shrug, Hiram said, still eating, Hey, great. What does she do? It's Billy's. Hiram put down the blade of his steak knife and tongs of his fork on the plate still holding the handles. I don't think so, he said. He's the only one. You can't be sure with kids nowadays. Tasha isn't like that, Hiram. Well, it wasn't Billy, Hiram said, eating again. I told him not to get your girls pregnant. Warned him to use protection if he had to have them. Carol's cheeks flushed with anger. There is no doubt, Hiram. It can be proven. There is no doubt. She seduced him then, trapped him. 
She's not that good-looking, and she saw the opportunity to get herself a man. She's attractive and sweet, Carol said. Not sweet. Always treated me like panty shit, Hiram said. They made love, Hiram, a lot, in our house when no one else was there. Billy's going to be a father, she said. It's time for joy. Hiram increased the intensity of his eating. She didn't take her eyes off him, but he didn't look at her for more than a minute. What are you going to do, she said. Do? Finally, Hiram looked to her with cold eyes. Support them, she said. It's your grandchild. Billy can't support them. Billy will do well, Hiram said. But even so, Billy's got no responsibility for Tasha's mistake. It's not Tasha's mistake, Carol thought. It's two humans having a baby. Thought she wanted to scream to the world, but she kept silent. Hiram continued. Billy's got a life ahead of him. He's good musically, and I think he's taking computer stuff in college for a career. Hiram wasn't even sure of Billy's major. He just didn't see Billy that often. But he did care. Billy should marry her, Carol said. Never. And don't ever think I'm taking care of Tasha anymore. She was underage, Carol said. Hiram finished his meal in silence. Take care of it, he said finally. I'll pay for that. She felt a void inside her fill quickly with what was becoming a frequent extreme dislike for her husband, Hiram McDowell. I won't do that, she said. I'll ask Peek. He'll know someone discreet in Denver, Hiram said. It's immoral, illegal. Think of it as euthanasia, Hiram said. That's repulsive. I'm not letting Billy get trapped into some dour future, Hiram said. Hiram believes all the world exists to serve him, Carol thought. And he'll abort his grandchild to avoid inconvenience. Your loving support could create a beautiful future for them, she said. They're in love. I won't do it, he said. They don't know what love is. What if I claimed he raped her, she thought. Of course it's not true, but I could claim it. Seek investigation, prosecution. Hiram stared impassively out a window past her. She had liked Billy most of the time, but he would never be successful in career or business. Unlike his father, he was kind and he'd be a great parent, maybe even patch together two families at war with each other. And don't think claiming rape will ever stick, Hiram said, knowing what she would think. You owe child support, at least, Carol said. I know legal experts that could tangle that into oblivion and two hours of fees and nothing ever for you or Tasha, Hiram said. This is your grandchild. Bullshit. You'll need proof to convince me. The waiter cleared the table, and Hiram did not look at Carol, nor she at him. Carol spoke when no one could hear. I'll file for divorce, Hiram. Is that a promise? Hiram said. I will. Hiram stood and laid his folded napkin on the table. Threaten something new, he said. He left without looking at her. She was unwilling to move for a while, overwhelmed with anger and hate. He'd used her. Against her better judgment, she'd signed a prenuptial agreement. 
With divorce, she'd get nothing. How could she hold on to the meager assets she had? How would she get Tasha through life as a single mother with modest abilities? She would do it, damn it, despite Hiram, although he would never think of her again and never feel the hurt she would try to inflict. She'd get DNA confirmation. But it was risky. What if she was wrong about Billy being the father? What if he didn't match? That would close any hope of Hiram and Billy's support for Tasha. Carol stayed alone that night in the hotel, not knowing where Hiram was. She was not only lonely, she was angry and despondent. Divorce meant nothing to him. He welcomed it. She was sure he'd climb tomorrow, play with flat-out Smith on Sunday, never break his routine to work things out with her. And he'd ignore her with purpose despite her. She went home to Denver the next day and arrived mid-afternoon. Billy had already moved out. In three days, all of Hiram's possessions were gone, the house depleted of expensive artwork and valuable furniture. So she kept Tasha isolated not only from Billy, who kept trying to see her, but all the McDowells, too. And she filed for divorce. She saw her marriage clearly. She had no love for Hiram. He made her feel useless and unwanted, and she hated being around him. Chapter 10. Chicago. Sophie McDowell. Sophie's memory of school, the private girls' school in the East, was skewed by the isolation she had felt. With no deviation, she hadn't liked the snobbish girls, and she avoided intimacy. She was cursed with a free-floating, smoldering anger about everything around her. The excesses of personal spending the unwavering claim to social superiority. Her teachers evaluated her as sullen, curt, standoffish. And although she never liked being alone, she preferred being alone to having to be with her classmates. She was an average student with a brief scare of failing two required courses. She turned to Hiram for help to pass and made it through with re-exams Hiram demanded and special tutoring he paid for. Life bloomed for Sophie when she went to art school in Chicago. The school was accredited, although barely from the rumors, and gave a degree with the accumulation of college credits, some of which had to be earned at other colleges with required academic courses. She started with drawing and painting, but realism was difficult for her. She couldn't translate images with any accuracy or dexterity. She'd tried abstraction but her dull lines lacked energy, and her homogenized colors of tired grays and browns failed to turn any heads. Learning photography changed Sophie's life. Framing her subjects, awareness of lights and darks, filtered colors to emphasize a mood, recording life in journalistic views, accentuating forms in portraits that enhanced truths without deceit, all of that excited her. For the last three years of art school, she matured to a professionalism that gave her pride and purpose. She began to open to people, a liberation of caring and trust permitted by her newfound confidence. And she made a friend, Ivana, a girl with a mirrored devotion to photography, whom Sophie loved and who gave her purpose. On a Sunday, for Ivana's birthday, 
Sophie took her to the House of Blues Gospel Brunch. On leaving, they walked to the Art Institute of Chicago and critiqued the Impressionist, and then discovered a sense of life and antiquity. After a coffee and sandwich in the cafeteria, they walked down Columbus Street through Grant Park. Look, Ivana said, pointing two hundred feet away to a man beating a woman with a stone clutched in his right hand. Sophie broke into a run, and Ivana followed. A woman crumpled to the ground. The man kicked her in the stomach twice with a pointed toe boot and fled when he saw Sophie and Ivana coming. The woman moaned, bent over and retching. She was bleeding from the nose and mouth and a scalp wound. She was barely conscious. I'll call the police, Sophie said to the woman reaching for her cell phone. No, the woman gasped. No police. She had an accent too slight to pinpoint her origins. Call. Ivana said to Sophie as she rolled the woman on her back and supported her head with Sophie's wadded-up jacket. Who was that man? Ivana asked the woman. No one, the woman muttered. You know him, don't you? Ivana said. I'll be all right, the woman answered. Is he your boyfriend, your husband? The woman didn't answer and tried to stand up to leave but fell back and curled into a fetal position to ease the pain. You have to report him, Sophie said. The woman shook her head no. An EMS vehicle came down Lakeshore with lights flashing and a siren wailing. The police arrived seconds later. The attendants found high pulse and low blood pressure. They suspected internal bleeding when Ivana asked. The ambulance left with the woman for the hospital, and Ivana and Sophie talked to the police for the official report. They described the man and told of the woman's refusal to say who it was. Who can understand that, the cop said. Common enough. Probably a whore. She didn't seem like that, Ivana said. A wife, then. Some wives seem to thrive on abuse. Blatant sexism, Sophie thought. Can't something be done, Sophie asked. Hospital social services would be contacted to begin an investigation, the cop assured them. Ivana and Sophie walked to find a bus stop to go back to school. They talked of the woman, and they talked of all the women who were abused physically and mentally in the city. Ivana sensed photography could bring the plight of women in Chicago to the attention of the public. It was a third-world existence for many, and Sophie and Ivana needed a graduation project. The school approved a joint project, and for months they documented, in a series of images, women in Chicago. They graduated, and a New York house published their portfolio that received more than expected critical acclaim. When Sophie and Ivana graduated, they were Siamese twin soulmates and accepted positions at the same studio in New York. They rented rooms uptown on the west side, and traveled to and from work together sharing cab fare to save money. The studio work was mostly portraits, usually of the rich and famous. Ivana had the knack for it more than Sophie, but they both gained decent reputations and success. Ivana wanted to do another project based on the success of their Chicago Southside Women collection while in school to document the plight of women in third-world Asian countries, and also Guatemala, Peru, Nicaragua. Mexico and Cuba. Ivana was interested in cultures of sexism and degradation of women in general, 
women who were denied education and forced into labor, even in families with sufficient incomes. They planned the project to completion. Sophie never imagined how happy she could be, how life seemed an expanse of pleasing and rewarding opportunities. Ivana was her best friend. She thought of Ivana's family, and she felt at peace. Chapter 11 Hiram sent Sophie a monthly allowance check timed so she could prepay the rent. As what had become their monthly habit, Sophie and her new live-in partner, June, went to a fine restaurant as a ritual homage to the old man who was off climbing mountains somewhere or politicking in Chicago, where he'd been elected president of the International College of Surgeons. On this night, June brought her new client, Ella Robust, who had signed a contract today. Is that a pen name? Sophie asked Ella as they were being led to June and Sophie's usual table. Ella laughed. I never use my name. My husband's Polish. Lots of C's and Z's and K's. Sophie smiled but felt no humor. But June picked it out for me, Ella said. What do you think, Sophie? Sophie glanced at June. No, no, tell me how it strikes you, Ella said. They took their seats. It's important, she continued. I'll have it for a long time. She writes out of this world, June said. I don't like it, Sophie said. She glanced away from Ella and June. Don't be contrary, June said. For the past few months, June hadn't hesitated to denigrate Sophie in front of others. Sophie held back a retort. I write sci-fi murders from a woman's point of view. What would you suggest for a name? Ella asked Sophie. Uh, maybe Peony Galactica, Sophie said after a short pause. Looking back at Ella now, she realized Ella wasn't offended. Edith's my real name, Ella said. It doesn't sound sci-fi, Sophie said. More from the time of Plath, or maybe even Emily Dickinson. Really, Sophie, June said. I think she's right, Ella said. But Galactica? That's pure cliché, June persisted. Sci-fi is cliché, Ella said. Galactica is from the Greek, Sophie said. That adds class, and Peony is feminine. Still tacky, June said. I don't think so, June. Sophie's right, Ella said. I'd like to change. We'll think about it, June said emphatically. I don't want to think about it. I like the idea. Ella held her hand up. Peony Galactica, she said with exaggerated emphasis. Yes, of course. June said angrily. Sophie closed her eyes. Now let's order, June said. That night, in bed in the apartment, June showed no need for affection. But Sophie needed her and reached out to touch June's arm. June moved away. Can't we forget it? Sophie whispered. We cannot forget it. It's part of a new trend you're on, Sophie. Always having a better way to do something. I don't like it. She asked me, Sophie said. Any normal person would have said it was great, no matter what they thought. Why make a big deal about it? I had an idea and I told her, Sophie said. She liked it. It's a stupid name, Sophie. Peony Galactica. 
Shit, I'm in the business. I know what sells. Ella Robust? Sophie turned her back to June. They were silent for many minutes, the air tense between them. June started laughing. What's the matter? Sophie asked, thinking June was being cruel. But June rolled over and took Sophie in her arms. I'm crazy, she said into her ear. Peony's a good name, at least better than Ella Robust. Sophie felt a flood of warmth. I'm glad you like it, she said, relaxing. And I love you, June said. Three months later, on one of their check-delivered-from-Hiram celebrations, June invited another new client author to dinner. They had reservations for Mandarin food at a new restaurant. Uh, he's a little affected, June said. He? Sophie hated the thoughts of dinners with male authors. Arrogant, too, but he's nice enough, June said. Sophie thought he was bizarre. Dyed black hair and a grayish-brown goatee and mustache. It was as if he was trying to look folksy and distinguished at the same time, with the strained flavor of Mark Twain. He looked silly, Sophie thought. Ridiculous, really. He wore a linen-white sport coat, a red-and-blue paisley ascot tucked in a white button-down dress shirt, and stressed blue heather jeans held up by a rope belt with a turquoise and ebony belt buckle. A Princeton Navarro, June introduced. Sophie wondered if it was a pen name, but she was afraid to ask. Sophie is a photographer, June said. How interesting, Princeton said, distracted, as he scrutinized two males entering the front door. She's quite famous for her studies of women, June said, a true artist. I prefer a narrative to visual images, Princeton said. Princeton brought back his gaze to June. I think you'd be challenged in describing Sophie's work, June said. Ah, uh, I could handle it, he said. I do breast and pudenda. Sophie said to unsettle him a little. She did mostly portraits, never erotica. June gave her a severe glare. But Princeton Navarro didn't seem repulsed or impressed, more disinterested. Princeton's work is fascinating, June said, Western novels, exploring how homosexuality wove camaraderie, strength, and spirit in the West in the mid-19th century. Well, that would explain the dress, Sophie thought struggling not to show any outward interest in what this creep did or who he was. Princeton Navarro needed only an occasional prompt from June to talk about himself. He'd never graduated from college. He was proud that he was a self-made author. He had independent support, something that fit the moods of meditation he enjoyed immersing himself in. These moods were the source of great images descending on him, he insisted. He could see horses foaming at the mouth, chomping on the bit, the raised tail before defecation. He could hear the hacking smoker's coughs of two cowboys under the stars beneath a cloudless sky, cooking beans in an iron skillet over an open stick fire. Sophie moaned inwardly and gave Anne a hostile stare as Anne egged Princeton on to his platitudes spoken as he drank freely with an increasingly nasal voice and with thoughts banal to the extreme. He invited them back to his penthouse apartment on the Upper East Side. His parents bought it for him, 
They were generous with their inherited wealth. We can't tonight, Sophie said. Oh, I'd love to, June said. We'll find you a cab, she said to Sophie. I can't have you walking back alone at night. But Sophie returned home defiantly walking alone. June arrived at the apartment after 3 a.m. Sophie longed to appease June and started to make love, but the strong smell of recent sex with the male stopped her. This had happened twice before with June and men, but this time hurt Sophie more. Princeton Navarro wasn't worth it. She turned over and pulled up the coverlet to hide her tears. June moved out of Sophie's place to live with Princeton a month later. He was wealthy beyond either Sophie or June's experience and would soon go to Europe to start working on his new book. He was taking June with him. He was blossoming his career with a new three-volume work on Aboriginal sex, yet to be researched, but still well underway as a non-fiction memoir of a fictional outback native. I've taken a six-month leave of absence, June said. Sophie doubted leave. She thought June had quit or been fired from her editorial job. Do you love him? Sophie asked June. I think so, June said. Like you love me? I still love you, honey. It's different. It's an opportunity, June said. I don't want you to go, Sophie said. Oh, pooh, June said. God, he's so weird. I've discovered so much good about him, June said. He's quite intellectual. Arrogant. Don't be bitchy, Sophie. He is. June backed away. You don't know crap about him. Sophie held back her need to weep. Is this it? she asked. I'll give you $200 for the back rent, June said. You owe me 2600 June shrugged. You're not coming back? Sophie asked. June didn't respond. I love you, Sophie said. June flushed. Grow up, she said. Are you going to marry him? Sophie asked. June didn't answer. She doesn't love him, Sophie thought. This is security. Freedom from the grind of June's time-consuming and unrewarding work as a second-tier editor, where her blunted intellect would never attain recognition. Of course it will never last. Both of them will be to blame. But Sophie couldn't forgive the fact that June thought it would last, and June could care more for Princeton and his money than she did for her. I hate you, Sophie said, but her heart still ached. Chapter 12 New York Page Sterling On the 47th floor of Network Corporate Headquarters in New York, Paige Sterling opened the windowless oak door to her new boss's temporary office. He was in the space until renovations were complete for his new suite on the top floor. He was alone behind a desk. Perry Rosenthal. She'd never seen him up close. Swarthy, thick myopic glasses with black rims. Small head on a puny body. Unkempt, curly black hair with an oval patch of gray on the back right. He smiled as he motioned her to sit in a wooden armchair in front of the desk and showed crooked teeth with spaces in front. She sat. He stared at her without speaking. 
Should I welcome him to his new job as program director and senior vice president, she thought. But she didn't like his looks or his reputation. He left one network to invade her network that was an industry leader with better ratings and better pay. Still his gaze did not falter. What's with you, she said, irritated at his conceit. He kept silent. I don't have to put up with this rudeness, she added. He laughed thinly. Relax, he said. I was thinking. I'm not smooth, but you'll find me easy to get along with. Really? Get along at what? she asked. Be civil, he said. He was frowning. I've got to make changes, Paige. Despite what you may think, I don't find it easy. She remained motionless. Rosenthal's quick ascendancy to top management carried a cloud of rumors about show cancellations and sacking of key on-air personalities like herself. Current news segments, he said. Her heart pounded as her anger flared. He's going to fire me, she thought. That's what it sounded like. Yes, of course. There had been rumors. Twelve years I've been a leader, she said. It's not all about you, Rosenthal said. There will be extensive changes throughout. I was the first woman host on week's end. Look, I'm making some scheduling changes. My segments on week's end made it what it is. I'm taking you off week's end as a host, but I'm not pushing you out. Panic shot through Paige. My contributions have been extraordinary. God damn it, Paige. It's not all that. But face reality. You're not what you used to be. You're past your prime. And you didn't make the show. Walter, Tom, Harvey, and Mike made the show. And we're broadcasting to new generations. That's a sexist denial of my popularity, Paige said. Rosenthal shook his head. You wallow in fantasy. My ratings are always up there. Never on top. Sometimes. Not enough. And your pieces are derogatory to excess. Your thrust for the jugular offends people. I divulge important news. With inflammatory details that border on truth and make us all vulnerable for legal action. Walter wants me out, Harvey. Everybody wants you out. She doubted that was true. I have a loyal following, she said. She gathered herself. Her future was fogging over. I've got a contract, she added. You got me there, Rosenthal said. I tried, but I won't break it. You tried? Of course. But a buyout is not good value, and firing a woman is not good politics. I've been on the job ten weeks, and I've been accused of whacking staff with a sexist hatchet. Not a good time to add you to that list. So you are firing me, just with slow torture. Not now. I'm adjusting your role and contribution to the news cycle. Which means, like I said, no more routine hosting Sunday nights on week's end. You do short segments when assigned. I'm not a rookie, Paige said. It's an opportunity, Rosenthal replied. It's demeaning. I'm a celebrity. Barely. That food segment on leeks and mushrooms was overboiled. I'm not stuffed full of crappy metaphors, Paige thought. She leaned back and crossed her thin legs. True, they weren't curvaceous like the young competitors straight out of journalism schools. 
but they weren't that shapeless, and she'd been paying careful attention to her face. She had tight-stretched, wrinkleless skin. I can get a job elsewhere, she said. ABC will take me. It would be a blessing, Rosenthal said. She had no chance at 54 of getting a top spot on a hard news program now, especially on a major network. Rosenthal knew it, too. And she was no good at pop culture. But she was on the board of the Whitney Museum of Art, which should give her inroads no other journalist had. My God, on-air time is really given to the arts, she thought. TV now is all crime and sports, sensationalism, expose. And she couldn't bear the thought of interviewing underclad, overweight pop artists in six-inch platform shoes. It was depressing. She turned a little more optimistic. Maybe it was time to take on new fields. Be positive, she thought. Rosenthal was demoting her, but he wasn't going to let her go soon. She believed that now. I want specials. I've done some memorable ones, she said, pressing for an advantage. Rosenthal laughed out loud. You could have legal complications here, she said. Really? Discrimination, gender, age. You're not a star anymore, Rosenthal said, and if I replace you, I'll replace you with a woman. You fire the old faithful standbys, your in-house authority will be non-existent, Page said. Look, I want you to take over health care, he said. Health care? I don't like doctors, she said. It'll make you do better. Put some needed balance into your overwrought reporting. You want me to do research advancements? Do a four-hour Viagra erection as an emergency. How it feels, what to do, he said, but he was laughing. Don't degrade my talent. I'm serious. Report on the state of the art in healthcare, he said, on unusual advancements, stars in the field, or doctors' personalities. When would I be on? Page asked. Nightly news. From the desk? In the field. And the specials? Only shorts. A few twelve minute segments on a week's end? I don't have to be a host, but I'd be recognized maybe every couple weeks. I'll make it good. God. Damn it, Paige, Rosenthal said. I keep my staff, she asked. Rosenthal sighed in submission. You won't be sorry, she said. She'd gained some ground. But God, health care? I'm already sorry, he said. Chapter 13 Over the next few months, Paige produced a number of spots for evening news some national. Perry had even allowed her one for week's end when he called her in for an emergency meeting. Hey, you're becoming a poster girl for health, he greeted her. How clever he thought he was, she thought. What do you want, she said. No, I'm serious. Good work. How devious. What does he want now? Is he ready to push me out? Look, he said. I want you to do an hour-long special after the first of the year on the accomplishments of this Dr. Hiram McDowell. He's president of the Board of Regents of the International College of Surgeons, and he heads a department of surgery in Denver. He climbs high mountains, runs marathons. He's a founder of a foundation that upfronts a surgery center in Nepal. 
Boku humanitarian, a superhuman hero. A doctor isn't exciting news, Page said. The president's chief of staff has officially hinted they'll use him on the president's task force to launch the health care initiative for financing the uninsured. Who cares about a doctor on a task force, Page asked. I do, the president does, and all the depressed, hurting, pain-racked citizens without insurance who are waiting for you to make the world care. All for your political gain and influence, she said. Do I get other specials after this? Ones I can choose? We'll see what comes out of the oven, he said. God, it's like Hansel and Gretel. I hate his metaphors. And I'll be the lead on this McDowell guy. Absolute control, she said. Hey, make it good. Impress him. Woo him. Make him awestruck with what they hear. Well, she would do it. She'd lost career momentum with her demotion by Rosenthal to healthcare, but she was gaining respect again despite him. I've always had the gift, she thought. She'd make this the best special of the year. And if this McDowell guy was the savior for the present sagging authority, so be it. But she would not do it for Rosenthal and his undercurrent of deals for his own gain. She'd do it for the excellence in her profession to serve her audience. She stood, keeping her arms to her side to not show the sweat-soaked stains she knew were on her dress under her arms. I'll think about it, she said. Yes or no, Rosenthal said. She didn't take her eyes off him for many seconds. She nodded. He waved his hand to dismiss her. Page led a preliminary weekly meeting of her staff for the McDowell special. Many staff had been working full-time on the project for almost a week. Amara Oud, her new assistant recently appointed by Rosenthal and just starting her career, Victor, an assigned primary photographer with valuable experience with many networks, Condoleezza, her chief writer for nine years, and three techs and gophers. Perry Rosenthal sat in. Page asked what they had so far. Condoleezza spoke up first. I've started a file on McDowell's early climbing experiences in the Himalayas. He was part of expeditions that lost six men on an attempt in the 80s. McDowell was injured, and his climbing partner died on the descent. What's that got to do with this special? Amara Oud asked with a touch of disdain inappropriate for a newcomer. Possibly a lot, Page said. Condoleezza found something that borders on extraordinary. Reading the accounts from those on that mountain on that fatal day is pretty damn revealing, Condoleezza said. It took luck and guts to make it down. Hiram is mentioned in the memoirs of a Pole and an Argentinian in separate accounts. They were on the mountain trying to survive at the same time. I've followed climbers as far as Camp 3, Victor said. The risks are high. Hundreds have died. Both memoirs suggest McDowell abandoned his partner, Condoleezza said. There's a point where you have to save yourself, and a lot of them believe that, Victor said. We're doing a profile on a famous surgeon, Rosenthal said. Why are we stuck on climbing expeditions? He's climbed every Nepalese peak above 8,000 meters, some more than twice. 
It's an important part of who he is. It could be related to competency, Page said. More like a quirk, Rosenthal said. You've got to be good to survive what he's done, Amara Ood said. Maybe not that unusual anymore, Rosenthal said, and not related to his health care career. Use his philanthropy, all his pro bono work. We're doing this special to assure he remains on that task force for health care, and the public sees him as a benevolent savior, not just a callous superhero. I'm in charge, Page thought. We need the climbing history to present a balanced portrait. We could check out the climbing career and how it helped him build the foundation in the hospital, she said. It would strengthen the presentation of his character. He's there a lot, isn't he, in the Himalayas, Amara asked. Four to five times a year, Condoleezza said. Has anyone ever been to the clinic, Amara asked. Uh, no, Condoleezza said. It would be great. We could get a sense of the personalities involved, McDowell's leadership style. And the climbing skills, too, Amara said. Paige wondered if she'd been wrong about Amara. She had never shown the slightest interest in McDowell's climbing. Well, let's get on it, and then move on to other things, Amara said. We'll have more when I get back from Nepal. Oh, no, Paige thought. The little minion wants to travel. It's got nothing to do with McDowell. On whose authority do you plan to go? Page asked, irritated with this surprise announcement from someone who obviously was reporting primarily to Rosenthal and not to her. Perry's, Amara said. Amara looked at Rosenthal, who stayed silent while returning Amara's gaze. Page waited for Rosenthal to look at her, to let her know she was still in charge. He did not. Thanks for being so diligent, Page said to Amara the little witch. But you'll be needed here, Page glanced from Rosenthal to Amara. I'm going, and I'll take Condoleezza and Victor next month, before climbing season ends. Condoleezza looked to Page with surprise. Victor smiled, eager for the photographic opportunities in Nepal. I want to document the philanthropic effort, and I'll see about the climbing. I'll oversee the entire operation in Nepal. Page said with as much emphasis as she could manage without shouting. I want to go. Amara looked again at Rosenthal. There's no need, Page said. The three of us can handle it. That's not fair, Amara said, waiting for support from Rosenthal. But he did not respond. Page smiled inwardly. She'd reestablished herself with impressive health care segments to a point where Rosenthal had not been willing to override her authority for the favors of a bimbo newcomer. Was Amara sleeping with him, she thought? That was how he often managed female staff. Is there anything else, Paige said before ending the meeting? She wondered how the sex with Amara would go tonight. That little exploiter. She'd fake it like a pro, with moans and sighs but with a heart as disinterested as a hermaphrodite to a castrati. Page took Rosenthal aside as they exited. Don't try to ease me out with that Amara person, she said. Rosenthal laughed. That's exactly his plan. She could see that from the humorous glint in his eyes, but he said, You're paranoid, Page. Just relax. Relaxing was the one thing she could not do.
Chapter 14 Hiram Hiram was in New York on foundation business. He worried about Sophie. Sophie said she had broken up with her lesbian friend. She refused to return calls. He was not pleased. When he could arrange free time, he paid a surprise visit to Sophie. He rang Sophie's doorbell several times. Open up, Hiram said. When he heard no movement inside, he dialed 911 on his cell. I'm calling the police. The door opened. Sophie was disheveled in sweats and an extra-large black T-shirt with a skull and crossbones on the front. She was shockingly gaunt and trashy-looking. Get dressed, Hiram said. I'm taking you out for dinner. I don't want to, she said. What's wrong with you? Sophie burst into tears. Where's that June person? Sophie moaned. She left you for good? Sophie sobbed. Lesbian love, Hiram thought. Disgusting, really. Can that really be satisfying? Why couldn't a cute, talented girl like Sophie find a good-looking, talented guy? Jesus. And this loser June woman with piss-poor income has to be the worst choice for a partner. And she's living off Sophie's allowance. Sophie's judgment of character isn't the best. Have you been working, he asked. Sophie didn't respond. Get dressed, he demanded. At dinner, Hiram learned the ins and outs of June's defection. Sophie had lost all desire to succeed at anything. She would stare at a television, unable to find something that held her attention. She drank only coffee for breakfast and ate nothing. During the day, she snacked on dried banana and mango packaged snacks. She ate carryout for dinner. Days and nights were indistinguishable for her, she said. Each time she got out of bed, she was determined to work out, but rationalized excuses within minutes. She had no friends now, she took no photos, and she did not accept appointments or go to the studio where she had not worked for weeks. She'd lost weight. She couldn't look into a mirror. He had never seen her so dejected. Where was the vibrant Sophie he knew and loved? After dinner, Hiram insisted they walk. I'm tired, Sophie said. We'll walk, he said. It was dusk and they went through the park where the shadows were darkening and the lights on Fifth Avenue were flickering through the trees as they strolled. You've got to get it together, Hiram said. Is she suicidal, he wondered. But I can't just cut off caring for her like that, Sophie said defensively. You've never had to face that. You've never loved someone the way I love June. And you're a man. It was a few seconds before he replied, You're wrong, I think, about never having to face the loss. But I am a man. Iram smiled. Sophie didn't respond. Your mother. She was dead for me long before she left this world. And I missed her when she left me. Missed what she'd been before she got sick. You ignored her all those years, Sophie said. She wasn't who I married when you knew her, Sophie. You don't have the right or the knowledge to judge me. She was your wife, the mother of Billy and me, and she struggled to bring us up without you, for Christ's sake. And she treated Anne as her own. There was a lot you never saw, Hiram said. 
She died because you never cared. She died of cancer. She gave up. She didn't want to live. Damn it, I really did hurt when your mother imploded into herself. Believe it or not, I just never could reach her. You never tried. Always caught up in your success. You disappeared from her life and ours. What other choices would you have made if you were me? Iram asked. You would have ignored us no matter what happened between you and Mother. It's you. Take some responsibility for Mother's decline and the misery of your children. Was that reasonable, he thought? Anger frustrated him. I am who I am, he finally said. You're not the first to misunderstand me. You're not like most people, Sophie said. How can I be faulted for that? I'm not responsible for your misery, for Christ's sake. Why are you whining to me? Maybe I'm not what you think I should be. But you're responsible for your life. And June's dumping on you is not my fault. It's defeatist, and it's wrong. I do care. I'm just not good at expressing it. You're one cold son of a bitch, Sophie said. Not all the time. And you're arrogant and stubborn. Can you think of anything else? Hiram smiled. Sophie remained stone-faced. They walked in silence. They walked up four steps near 52nd Street. Above the trees, the illumination from the Plaza Hotel could be seen. Old-fashioned, incandescent glows without the fluorescent harshness of modern displays. Time for an after-dinner drink, he asked. He was hurt by Sophie's detachment from him when she said nothing. She doesn't understand, he thought. She was crying. He clutched her arm and turned her to face him. He looked at her until she finally looked up into his eyes. He took her in his arms and whispered into her ear, I love you, Soph. Always have. Always will. In the hotel, they sat in Louis XVI armchairs around a knee-high coffee table in the bar area. You've got to start a project, Hiram said. We have a project, Sophie said. Ivana and me. But she's having trouble getting funding. I haven't heard from her in two months. Hiram absorbed the details. That evening he called his assistant and canceled all meetings and clinics for three days. Two days later, he picked up Sophie at her apartment. She looked better. She'd showered. Her leg hair was gone. She tried to cut her hair even but it was still a little scraggly on the ends, as if she'd used a razor without looking into a mirror. Then Sophie and Hiram, with Ivana, went to see Sophie's boss at the photo studio. Within an hour, Hiram had a plan laid out for Sophie and Ivana. He returned to Denver. With the backing of Hiram's initial investment, Ivana applied to National Geographic, Endowment for the Arts and two humanitarian foundations to continue documentation of women in the Far East. Hiram negotiated with the studio to support them during startup with full salaries for half a year, and he would support the other half. In total, they would be generously funded for a time to bring the project to completion. A publisher had already purchased rights based on their previous work. Their first stay would be Turkey. They would live and travel in and around Istanbul with excursions to neighboring countries for three months, then return to assess and plan for the next of three more regions, 
An apartment had been rented, visa secured, flights booked, and equipment and necessities acquired. Chapter 15 New York Page Even after her demotion, Page continued to have an almost universal reputation for due diligence, hard work, and investigative reporting, albeit aggressive and often shot from the hip. And she dedicated herself to discovering the life and times of McDowell. She started her research for the special by attending a Mercy Foundation fundraiser where the good Dr. McDowell would be the glittering star of a show to pinpoint need, induce sympathy, and loosen bank accounts of people with enough money. The point was to make the attendants harbor a kind of guilt that pleaded to be relieved, and, they subconsciously hoped, a guilt that could be erased only by giving to the Foundation, ostentatiously if possible. It was held at a convention center. On the marquee above the multi-door entrance was the Foundation slogan, Health and Happiness. Men still look at me, Paige thought, as she mingled in the crowd while browsing silent auction items. The items were displayed on tables, platforms, pedestals, and hanging from the ceiling, in a room the size of an airplane hangar. And it wasn't just her fame they were staring at. I still have plenty of glamour, she thought. Well, at least some glamour, thanks to good facial bone structure and beautiful blue eyes that never age. She'd chosen a red silk knee-length cocktail dress with short sleeves and a V-neck. She smiled inwardly when she caught one of the surgeons staring at her. And she was an auction item, too. Well, to be exact, the pitch was dinner at Le Petit Trois for two with television star journalist Paige Sterling. No one had bid on her yet, but it was early. Other items were impressive, too. An Italian vintage sports car that seemed so overpriced that it was unlikely to reach the minimum, a month of all expenses paid at a chalet near Lucerne, memorabilia from Michael Jackson's father's estate, an Elvis Presley guitar with signed photo of him on stage, a piano used by Horowitz, jewelry valued in the six and seven figures, etching and prints of Pollock and Magritte, Picasso, Dolly, and the like. Those items, too, had minimums that Page thought beyond the desires of reasonable human beings. But many of the celebrities in the crowd, with unlimited wealth and unlimited need to be admired, would succumb to a few extravagances, she was sure. In the giant hall, a twelve-piece jazz orchestra played. In the smaller auction room to the right of the hall, a string quartet played classical music that entertained guests as they browsed more modest highbrow items, tickets to sold-out shows, dinners for two to twenty guests at exclusive restaurants museum memberships, season passes to the Mets and Yankees, and other luxuries. There were eight bars scattered among the rooms, and drinks were also passed and served by an all-male staff of 20. The main dining room to the left of the giant hall seated over 800. Placed near the center of the room, a platform was readied for the master of ceremonies, an auctioneer for a live auction of hundreds of items, a moderator for the multi-floor-to-ceiling screen video presentations of the hospital in Nepal. The video showed the hospital support staff, the healed poor, and the desperately ill seeking treatment who would die without generous support from the crowd that night. And Hiram would address the crowd. On every wall space large enough 
were floor-to-ceiling photographs with life-size figures of Hiram and his staff and patients in wide-angle panoramic shots of Nepal, the valleys, and the mountains. Hiram's new, mostly ghost-written, memoir extolling his climbing, his rise to the top of his profession, his generosity, his unbounded energy, and his dedication to excellence had a frontispiece of him in cold-weather dress with one arm around a wrinkled but smiling toothless Nepalese woman and his other arm cradling an infant barely visible and half-buried in a peasant-woven blanket, the air around them painted with a mist of breath and bitter cold. On the title page of these limited first editions was Hiram's signature and grateful thanks for support in buying the book. A sign said all sales proceeds were for the sick and disabled. The book was paraded around to guests by a picture-perfect feminine specimen in her twenties in a mid-thigh skirt, white fishnet stockings, and gold spike heels. The publisher's sales representative, a gray-haired motherly-looking woman, took Paige's credit card information and looked up from her table. Would you like to take it with you, or shall I send it, she said. Could I leave it here, pick it up after the party? I can have it delivered to your table, Miss Sterling, after the dinner presentation, the woman said. Oh, thank you. Please be sure I get it personally. I might forget to look for it. Of course. And would you like to meet the co-author? The woman pointed to her left. He's coming, she said, and whispered. He comes by every half hour to check on the sales. I'd like to meet him, Paige said. The bearded author was young and handsome with an attractive reticence about him. She complimented him on the book and said she looked forward to reading it. She added, I'd love to have my associate Amara do an interview with you. I'd like that, he said. Give me your card and I'll set it up. It would keep Amara busy and it wasn't something of great importance for the special. Probably wouldn't make the cut for the special and would end up on the local news. Hiram was inaccessible the entire evening, always in the center of the crowd. Page reluctantly admired his attention-getting gesticulations as he told stories of his exploits, his gaze ceaselessly including everyone in the crowd. For a surgeon, he was gifted at engaging a group, and she felt vague discomfort. Although he was not physically alluring, she still found his dynamism attractive in a surprising way that she could not dismiss or ignore. She talked to a senator from western Pennsylvania whose wife, he said proudly, painted scenes in watercolor of rural sheds and unused century-old barns. One of her signed paintings was in the auction. Then she asked the senator, who was a board member, about his trip to visit the Nepal clinic. He'd been impressed beyond his wildest expectations with the facilities, the staff, and especially with Hiram, he said. Do you know how much money they expect to raise tonight? Page asked wondering how effective Hiram was in raising the big bucks. Uh, over a million. I imagine at least half of that from one or two sugar daddy donors. Page hesitated to ask too much, but the senator seemed pleased to be speculating from his insider position. How much does a shindig like this cost? she asked. A cloud of suspicion swept across the senator's face. He's connected me to my TV reputation. Tightened his scrotum a little, too, she thought with a touch of pride. Don't have the faintest, he said, squinting slightly, faint wrinkles near his eyes revealing his lie. 
Page knew the standards, even if arbitrary, that served as thresholds for fundraising that the press relied on. Roughly, if a million dollars were raised, the expected return to programs would be $650,000. More than a few ever met these standards, Page wondered how McDowell's foundation rated among the others. But at this level, it's always expensive, the senator continued. It costs money to make money. Deep-pocket donors need to be pampered. Was that really true, she thought? Partially, maybe. But as a mandate? Christ, the rental and the facilities must be close to 50000 She guessed the bill for the whole evening to be at least 300000 That would not factor in the cost of full-time foundation employees. There seemed to be many, and operating expenses. So if the senator would argue that 35% of the money donated went for party cost, that would be more than reasonable. 65% would go to charity. But it was hard to surmise those percentages in this presentation tonight. And the statistics could be adjusted in many ways. What if the gross was 400000 which Page thought was probably a reasonable estimate, if not an overestimate, for 600-plus guests? even if they were all wealthy beyond comprehension. If the expenses were for evening plus year-round expenses were factored in, they could have a 75 to 25% cost-to-benefit ratio, hardly acceptable. But it could be the opposite, too. With huge financial success, say multi-millions, even what to most would be excessive fundraising costs could actually be calculated to be more efficient than other penny-pinching organizations with small donor averages. She said her thanks to the senator and expressed her pleasure at being able to talk to him. He looked apprehensive. Had he revealed too much? Page wondered if she would have to investigate income, operating expenses, and actual dollars given to charity. Those figures would be hard to accumulate. Still, she'd need emphasis on the fundraising and the charity. It was another impressive McDowell achievement. She'd put Condoleezza on it. A few minutes later, she saw, with the lights dimmed and multiple stadium-sized screens lowered for simultaneous projection, a superbly filmed overview of the effort in Nepal. The poverty, the smiles of those benefited, the dedicated doctors and staff taking time from their lives to give their expertise to the health of the needy, was projected on four screens in the auditorium-sized room where dinner would be served. She thought the probable benefits of the fundraising justified almost any production cost. And this might be a shining example that McDowell's foundation was a super-efficient operation that could raise in one night what 20 smaller organizations with fewer resources and eager but poor guests with good intentions could acquire in two years of fundraising. The senator stood still next to her and looked apprehensive. She smiled inwardly. A marvelous presentation, Page said. A real honor to participate in such a worthwhile event. She meant it. The senator thanked her with restraint, but enthusiastically expressed his pleasure at meeting Page. If there's something about fundraising that's not obvious, and he hides it, we'll have to check, she thought. But I'm impressed. Chapter 16. New York. Sophie. I'm so sorry, Sophie said to Ivana. I'll miss you. Keep in touch. Let me know when you can get away, Ivana said. 
Ivana left for Turkey while Sophie dealt with Anne and Robert's family problems in Louisville. Anne had two children now, Jeremy and Penny. Jeremy had been expelled from the third grade twice. Penny was in preschool, extroverted but with no real friendships. Anne greeted each day with dread. She feared activities, except for the church. She turned shy around strangers. Most of the friends she made had drifted off without explanation. Sophie tried to comfort her. Robert had been spending nights at sports events and movies with guys from work to avoid being at home. That brought Anne to even more acute anxiety. Sophie took care of the children for two weeks, but Anne couldn't relax and refused to be thought of as neglecting her children by taking a little time off. Sophie's discussions with Robert were long and intense, but Robert, in an aloof but not unkind way, had difficulty in grasping the severity of Anne's condition, and he had no rapport with his children. After two weeks, Sophie left. She'd done nothing to make Anne or any of the family's lives better. Sophie arrived at LaGuardia after 10 p.m. and went straight to her apartment, where Ivana's mother had left a day-old recorded phone message. No details. Ivana was dead. Sophie called. Only Ivana's younger sister was available. She was murdered, she said. On the outskirts of Istanbul. We don't know much more. They're hunting down the killers. It's been on the news. I didn't know. I was with my sister, Sophie said. It's okay, the girl said. Sophie was sobbing now. I couldn't go. If she could have delayed a few weeks, we could have gone together. I didn't want her to go by herself. She was eager to get her project started. That's what she said. It was our project, Sophie said. I know, Ivana's sister said with impatience. Sophie put down the phone to blow her nose. She put the phone on speaker. I'll give you my cell number. Let me know when you know more. She rang off and lay down on her sofa, her arm draped across her eyes. Her heart was empty. Her best friend, who was to be married after the project was completed to a musician who adored her, was gone. As sorrow increased, and imagined images of Ivana's murder decreased with time, Sophie wondered if she could finish the project on her own. In Ivana's name and memory? It was on Ivana's talent and energy that the project ever got funded after her father's initial gift. Can I do it, she thought. That night she finally fell into a light sleep. She awoke with a start hours later. She had to keep active. She would complete the project. After all, the travel plans were made and the finances were budgeted. She didn't have Ivana's language skills, but she would manage. She began to make arrangements, looking at the itinerary they had worked out with such detail and excitement. Her equipment could be collected and checked and ready in a few days. She would do it even though Ivana couldn't be there, and it was going to be good, the way Ivana would have done it. But then anxiety gripped her. She had to convince the Foundation's backers she could succeed alone. She had to work out strategies. She'd make appointments with those key backers so she could continue. And for the first time in years, she closed her eyes and prayed to God to let her be successful, to do what was right for Ivana. Chapter 17 Hiram listened to Sophie's plans. It was ridiculous, dangerous, 
and it would do nothing for her career, her life. No, he said. There was no way he would let her go. When required, Sophie could turn stubborn. No one could stop her, not even her father. Hiram considered financial and even physical restraint, but knew Sophie was clever enough to eventually circumvent any plan to prevent her journey he put in place. Besides, for the first time in her life, she would be financially independent from him for more than a year. She'd have to sacrifice, budget, do without, but she had enough to refuse his help. She wanted to see herself as independent. Hiram was okay with that, pleased in fact. It was good for her. Two weeks later, Sophie called Hiram in tears. The Foundation would not let her go on her own. They would not be responsible for another death of a single woman. She was desperately looking for someone to join her, but there were no photographers. I let it go, Sophie, Hiram said. I'm not going to do that. I don't need you for this if I can find someone, Sophie said, and I will. We'll see what comes of that, Hiram mused. Billy called Hiram three days later. Hey, Dad, I'm going to Asia with Sophie. Absolutely not, Hiram said. You'll finish college. I failed two courses. Retake them. They're going to expel me. Well, you're not going with Sophie. It's naive to even consider it. You go to all parts of the world all the time. Not the same, Billy. We'll be safe if we're careful, and a woman traveling with a man has protection. Sophie looked up the State Department statistics and she'll avoid any countries with political unrest that might threaten foreigners. Forget it, Billy. Billy's silence told Hiram he too was determined. Determination to this degree was new for Billy, and as he had felt with Sophie's resolve, Hiram felt a little pride. At least Billy had a vision of something to accomplish. Hiram called Sophie. He had made contacts, he told her and he could make arrangements for her to have a home base at his foundation hospital in Nepal where she'd be safe. She could then make excursions into the areas she sought to document and return to Nepal between trips. It would prevent her from wandering place to place, tied to an agenda that couldn't be easily changed if she faced unpredictable dangers. And Billy, can he go? Sophie asked. I don't like it, Hiram said. He's a traveling companion I can trust. Hiram considered Sophie's request a stroke of luck for Billy. Billy's life in Denver was falling apart anyway. Carol had a restraining order on him to keep him away from Tasha and his son Earl, and Billy had been arrested when he defied the order. Sporadically, Billy played late night in bands. He was into marijuana. School held no interest for him. There was not one thing he seemed to want to accomplish. And after his tryst with Tasha, he rarely went out with girls. Hiram knew this trip was for the best, a godsend for his son without direction, and a chance for Billy to help Sophie follow a dream that would help assuage her guilt. On past habit, Hiram wouldn't give in to Sophie without some resistance that he considered instructive, but since he had already decided to let Billy go, there was no reason to keep Sophie in agony. To Hiram's continued surprise, Billy now seemed motivated and increasingly excited by travel with Sophie. Chapter 18 
Louisville. Anne. Late one night, well after midnight, Robert, Anne's husband, returned home from New York where he'd spent time with lawyers. He tiptoed in the darkness to their bed. Anne had not slept. She sat straight up. It's Jeremy, Anne said. I'm terrified. In the dark, Anne felt for a tissue in a box on the bedstand and wiped her eyes. She took Robert's hand under the cover when he slipped into bed. I'm tired, Anne, he said. Was it bad, she asked. I could be indicted. He turned his back to her and pretended to sleep. She tried to sleep. She thought about the puppy in the swimming pool, dead underwater, eyes open. She moaned at the memory of the burial behind the garage with two popsicle sticks for a cross among the turtle, the gerbil, the parrot, and Harry the cat. She cried softly. Robert turned. What now? Jeremy, he killed the puppy. Penny found it. She saw him. Step back from it, baby. It's not that serious. Do you really know what happened? Well, she didn't know for sure. Penny said Jeremy held it by the neck under the water. She thought that was true, but now she was unsure. I don't, she said. Penny's lied a lot these days, Robert said. Just let it go. He's probably innocent. It must have been an accident. But he's capable. He's mean, Robert. He shoots birds with his BB gun. They never die right away. He brings them into the yard to watch them. Sometimes it takes hours. Did you ask him about the puppy? One-on-one, -on -one, Robert asked. I did, of course. He got angry. Then sullen. He never admitted it to me. And he doesn't deny. I don't think he's violent, Robert said. He's hit me with a t-ball bat, threatened me with a poker from the fireplace. He cut me today with his penknife. Go to sleep. I'll talk to him this weekend, Robert said. I'm taking him, honey. I wish I'd never had children, she said. Why couldn't Robert just comfort me, she thought. A hug, no matter how brief, she felt so alone, so vulnerable, so permeated with fear that never abated. But Robert turned on his side away from her. See a psychiatrist, he said. He won't go to a psychiatrist. Not him, you, Robert said. She sobbed. I'm not crazy. A void swept into Anne, followed by desperation. Oh, relax, Robert said. He always seemed irritated with her failure as a mother. He blamed at least some of Jeremy's problems on her weaknesses, her never taking a firm stand, her reluctance to demand better behavior. He never said it out loud, but that's what he thought she was sure. And he felt smarter than she, and intolerant of her lack of success in anything. The psychiatrist said little to Anne in the first session. He sat so she couldn't see his face, but at times his responses seemed tangentially distracted, unrelated to her as if he were paging through a girly magazine or maybe a gourmet magazine like the one she'd seen on the coffee table in the waiting room. He definitely thought she was at fault for her depression, that it was something in her. I can't manage the children, she said, especially Jeremy. What do you think is the cause of his rebellion, he said. He's just violent. I don't know why. I see. Tell me about it. Our neighbor, Mrs. Sandhurst, her schnauzer died. You suspected Jeremy? 
I saw it dead, its skin charred off, the whole neighborhood saw. Its lips were gone, its teeth exposed in some eternal snarl. I can't get it out of my mind. I get nauseated thinking about it. And Jeremy did it? Yes, I think so. But you have no proof? Jeremy hated that dog, she said. Did you accuse him? He said I was always accusing him. What did your husband do? He didn't like the dog either. He said, that woman should have kept the damn thing locked up. It bit someone, didn't it? It was always yelping. Did he think Jeremy did it? He thinks Jeremy can do no wrong most of the time. He said, you can't believe Jeremy is involved. He never goes to the park by Mrs. Sandhurst's house. How do you feel about your husband? Oh, I love him very much, Anne said quickly with no hesitation. He tries to be a good husband and father. What about Jeremy? I love him, too. Of course I love him. Isn't he hard to love? I mean, he sounds difficult to be around. He's very smart. Sometimes he can be a joy to be around. And the other times? He's sullen, withdrawn, quick to anger, she paused. And mean, too. How is he at school? He acts out sometimes in his classes. He gets sent home often. But he gets really good grades, effortlessly. After the session, the psychiatrist placed Anne on medications, tranquilizers to dull the anxiety, and antidepressants to return her energy and reduce her fears. She would refill the prescriptions well before the prescribed date, calling the doctor to call the pharmacist. She was miserable, but needed the drugs for mind and soul alterations. In the next session, a week later, Anne blurted to the psychiatrist as soon as she arrived, I want to get out. Leave them. I don't do either of them any good. She'd have to look over her shoulder from the couch to see him sitting out of her view with his legs crossed at the ankles and stretched out. He didn't speak as he waited for her to continue. Of course I can't leave them, she said. Sometimes I want to kill myself. She didn't like this session. He seemed disinterested and supercilious. She sat up and looked at him. The psychiatrist's naturally heavy-looking eyelids widened slightly. Why do you say that? he asked finally. Anne stared with disbelief. It wasn't hard to figure out. She settled back into a more comfortable position. There is more to this than the children, the psychiatrist said. Anne saw no reason to respond. She'd told him about Robert, how distant he'd become, rarely spending time at home, blaming her for all the problems with Jeremy. You don't like him the way you do Penny, Robert had said more than once. It pits one against the other. Well, now she knew Robert wasn't brimming with love for either Jeremy or Penny, or really anyone, and she now doubted that he even liked himself with all his troubles. The psychiatrist waited. Despite herself, she felt a tension rise inside her. The psychiatrist was manipulating her. The silence became uncomfortable. I'm afraid, she said, or I would kill myself. She said it to shock him. She'd thought about it, but she would never do it. It was against God. She sensed no reaction in him, even without looking at him. We carry secrets that affect our lives, he said. What are you carrying? 
What is it that you can't share with anyone? She was irked by the childlike superficiality of his demeanor. He made her angry again. Something you need to get out, he said. That was prime. She didn't like his pompous immersion today, but he was perceptive. She'd give him that. She did have something, true or not, she had kept hidden. And it didn't make her treat Jeremy different. Jeremy didn't seem like any person she'd known. And he didn't have the traits she could relate to her or Robert's families. Jeremy's disregard for other human beings, for example, his rage at the smallest provocations. Well, she'd had sex in a moment of weakness. Within months after her marriage, she was vulnerable and insecure, and Robert seemed to look through her most of the time. He showed no passion or satisfaction from their lovemaking. She'd flirted with a barely competent plumber called to fix a poorly functioning water heater. He was quick to arousal and had taken her standing up against the front-loading washer in the basement. He'd said nothing after and left after she'd written a check to cover his invoice. The timing was right, and she would always wonder, but she'd never taken action to prove or disprove Jeremy's real father, afraid what the knowledge would do to her either way. She would never tell anyone. It would serve no purpose. How are you feeling now? Right at this moment, the psychiatrist said. I sense hostility, irritation. Is it toward me or something else? Her distaste for this insensitive treatment erupted. This mundane, crass, useless questioning by a human being whom she thought probably wasn't handling life any better than she. I hate this, she said. Well, you still have a half an hour. She stood and took her coat from a coat tree near the door. The psychiatrist didn't stand. You know, I really think you ought to talk this out. Not hold back, he said. And maybe I think it won't make one damn bit of difference one way or the other, she said. But she felt inadequate now, unable to think without indicating out-of-control feelings that exhausted her. She walked out. You finished so soon, Robert asked when she entered the waiting room. He stood and went into the doctor's office. He was back in minutes. He refused to talk to me, Robert said. Said you were beyond his help. Secretly, she was glad. She didn't want collusion of two males against her. This ends episode one of McDowell, a novel by William H. Coles. You'll find links to all episodes of McDowell and the iTunes Google Play feeds at storyandfictionpodcast.com. I'm Bill Coles, your host, and this podcast is produced by storyandliteraryfiction.com. Thanks for listening, and goodbye.